You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Andy Zell. We each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five biggest stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving us a positive review, just a thumbs up on YouTube. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach us at Jeff, Andy, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Two weeks in a row, Andy. I have returned. That's right. <laughs> right. Anna, get better soon. Happy you're here. Yeah. Happy you're no here. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing this week? Awesome, man. How are we doing? I'm doing good. I'm really starting to coast into the holiday, though. I'm going to be I'm real. I'm feeling it, too. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Just like, do I need to write that, though? I'm going to write it in January. <laughs> Not for this, though. No, Nothing no, but no. professionalism here. Absolutely. Let's get to it. Noses to the grindstone. First story. Company offers two free homes as worker incentive. Now, we've talked about it many times, but the labor shortage is impacting nearly every company in the industry. Many companies have increased wages and added large signing bonuses, but one company in Central Florida is offering uh, prospective employees two brand new and mortgage-free houses. Mechanical One is an HVAC and plumbing outfit that primarily works on new developments. Next December, President and CEO Jason James says they will raffle off two new homes in an effort to, quote, reinvent employee appreciation. The company will spend $500,000 to build two three-bedroom, two-bathroom homes. To qualify for the drawing, employees must be with the company for a full year and take a financial literacy class paid for by the company. They also need to do 20 hours of community service. Jeff, I really like this as an idea. Seems expensive. Yeah, here's a real hot take. This is cool. This is a great idea. I would agree. And, And no wonder it was so popular on the site. I think it does reflect... A lot of different sort of critical issues that we've been talking while talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. First of all, sort of the uptick in appreciation of the trades. You know, oh, yeah. when we're looking at what these folks do in terms of HVAC and plumbing, when you look at those trades overall, their wage increases over the last couple of years are up about four to five percent. Whereas mm-hmm. you see traditional cost of living increases more about three. So not huge upswelling of uh, financial support, but an increase that's a little bit better than average overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're also seeing the significance, obviously, that this company and really this sector is placing on retaining and also hopefully using this as a recruitment tool oh, yeah. to bring in more people. Um, this company is obviously doing well. And it, it in looking at all of those things, um, ran across a really interesting stat from a company called um, – People Ready, which basically is like a help wanted online type site. Oh, okay. But they focus on a lot of the trades specifically. And earlier this year, they ran some stuff looking at plumbing, carpentry, construction, and electrical workers. Um, all of the job postings for all those have increased anywhere between 12 and 24%. But those jobs are sitting idle for nearly a month before they can oh, get wow. anybody in there. So you can see while well, this is, you know, Andy's probably going to talk a little bit, I think, on the effectiveness of what mm-hmm. this could be in terms of getting attention and helping to retain or recruit workers. It gets it out there. And I think these industries or these companies are getting to a point where not only are they able to do some of these really cool things like auction off a, a couple of homes, yeah, but maybe they're feeling the pressure to really take these big swings because the traditional approaches just haven't been as effective in getting the high quality workers that they need. Right. I mean- we've gone through at least five years of just really hammering the apprenticeship uh, yeah. path. And it's still, there hasn't been as much of an uptick. I will say though, that that they're sitting idle for a month. That doesn't seem that long to me in the grand scheme of things. Like, I mean, it's yeah. still a lot, but I mean, I wonder how that kind of compares to other industries. I think to me, it seems like a lot because typically when those types of businesses are hiring, man, they need somebody. Now. Oh yeah. They're yeah. losing bids. They're losing opportunities to grow and expand if they don't have somebody there to obviously do the work, right? Right. Andy, the CEO first considered giving away a car or a vacation when he jumped to home. Just, I wonder what the, uh, what was behind that? <laughs> I, uh, I mean, as he, he mentioned here, a lot of his current employees rent instead right. of, instead of uh, own their own homes. So I'm sure that was a consideration because uh, we all are fortunate enough to own our, our homes. So uh, I think maybe a vacation might sound a little nicer than, 
than that. I'll um, t- I mean, I'll take another one. Sh- oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That sounds really um, greedy. It's <laughs> it's probably a sign I've been at this too long, but I read this and I immediately thought publicity stunt. Oh, yeah. But as a way to at least get your name out there, not a not a bad thing. When you say publicity stunt, it sounds cynical, yeah. kind of bad. But mm-hmm. if you're just trying to get your name out there, this is, uh, I mean, this is all publicity is good publicity, and this is uh, all over the place, not the least of which uh, on our site. So yeah, I mean, more we, power to them. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit, like when uh, what was the company that did the uh, donut in chief or the uh, the yeah. chief donut maker? You know, paying five hundred thousand for something like that, like this, I feel like marketing wise, it's already paid for itself in terms of reach. Um, and at the end of the day, he needs employees. So hopefully they can get some people in the door. I'm curious how, obviously it's good to draw attention to your company, which is new. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as an overall strategy beyond just marketing, how effective it would be. Cause you're talking about oh. two people who get a free house out of about a hundred workers. Now, depending on how many they attract through this promotion, your odds could fall a little more. So, yeah, I mean, are you guys, uh, a little more tempted to apply for a gig if you have a 2% shot at a house? Well, you have to be there a year, right? Right. In order to qualify for this one. I think if you're weighing your options in yeah. terms of, because right now, if you are this type of, of, of skilled tradesman, if it's HVAC or plumbing, you've got your pick. Mm-hmm. You've yeah. probably got a lot of different opportunities. And if you see this company that's investing internally like this in their employees and doing these types of things, I think it would skew me. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely it would definitely play a part in deciding where I want to go and who I feel like working for. Yeah, um, we see a lot of these places too, just either from things we see through the news media or just personal experiences, where you can tell where that person coming into your home is not a big fan of who they work for. Oh okay? yeah, okay, oh, yeah. they are not always a big advocate of their own company. I think this shifts that if yeah. you've got a chance to win a house, because like David was saying, even if you don't need that home. If you own your home, a very intelligent person once told me, well, they stopped making dirt a long time ago. So even just to get the lot, I mean, that's a great investment to have. Yeah. And it is. So basically the company does have a hundred employees now, but it just started in July. Uh, So none of the employees actually qualify yet, but you know, if, if it gets people to stick around a little bit longer, I agree with Jeff. It would make me, if I'm, if I have two up in the air, I'm going to choose the house, chance at a house, maybe over a signing bonus. And we're not privy to what other steps they might be taking to retain their employees either. I doubt True. this is uh, the be-all, end-all of those efforts. Um, yeah. yeah. I was uh, a fan of the uh, company paid financial literacy class. Oh. I could uh, use one of those myself. I, <laughs> I, I talk about that all the time about how in high school and college, I took many classes and the one I needed was, this is how you do finances. Exactly. Personal finances. Yep. Yeah. They started I mean, that in high school. Oh, okay. My daughters all had that stuff. Like they had to figure out their health insurance and everything. It was pretty impressive. That's um, really, that's I good. mean, the first time that they, you sit through that healthcare presentation and you're like, I don't know. I just <laughs> right. checked the boxes. Yeah. Right. And also I didn't know there the, the, how severe the consequences were with bouncing checks. I just thought it was kind of fun. Turns <laughs> out they get angry. <laughs> Litigious. <laughs> I still can't order pizza. Like, Within 30 miles of where I went to college. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, the oh. one thing that I thought about this is that it also speaks to another problem that uh, we've seen in the labor market, and that's affordable and available housing. Um, and I, we have another story coming out next week that talks a little bit more about that with people 3D printing homes. You know, it's just we see it in Madison locally. There's just not enough housing, affordable and available housing to uh, meet the needs of the job market. Wages have not kept up with uh, with home prices for yeah. decades. So yeah. this is uh, not, not a solution to it, but it certainly highlights it, as you said. Yeah. All right. Our next most popular story this week, home workers fall ruled a workplace accident. In 2018, a sales manager who was working from home slipped on a staircase and broke his back on his way from his kitchen to his home office. Well, last week, a German court ruled that the man could be covered under his employer's work, his employer's workplace accident insurance policy. The employee argued that employees who work from home should not receive less protection from accident insurance than others in the company. Some experts believe work from home injuries might be, quote, the next workers comp trend. According to some experts, just because the traditional office setting has shifted, that doesn't mean that injuries won't occur. This could include common ergonomic issues like back, neck, and shoulder pain, along with eye strain and fatigue. 
So, Jeff, what constitutes a workplace accident when you work from home? Okay. So, when we talk about workplace accidents, mm-hmm. I don't think stumbling over some suitcases because you were too lazy to put them away in your kitchen qualifies. Okay, counselor. Okay. I'm going to look at OSHA, and here's yep. what they define as a recordable injury or illness. Okay. Any work-related fatality, any work-related injury or illness that results in loss of consciousness, days away from work, restricted work, or transfer to another job. I'm pretty sure this sales guy could still handle his day-to-day responsibilities. He broke his back. Any work-related injury or illness requiring medical treatment beyond first aid. Okay. Any work-related diagnosed case of cancer, chronic, irreversible illness, fractured or cracked bones, teeth, or punctured eardrums. Now, the spirit of what OSHA is talking about here, Mm -hmm. they're talking about operating environments that are unavoidably and potentially dangerous. Mm -hmm. Okay. Things that you can't avoid. I don't think this is what they had in mind. If this guy, and I don't, I'm not sure who does he work for, does it say? Uh, it didn't say the company, no. Okay, but let's just, for instance, say this is somebody who works, he's in sales position with a manufacturing firm, mm-hmm. okay? This firm, this company potentially has all of these safety concerns to worry about in terms of producing their product and keeping employees safe on the plant floor. Now, if they have to turn attention to somebody working at home, and this is a horrible and unfortunate incident, I'm, I'm not trying to be completely... Uh, without pity here, but <laughs> I don't think it should qualify in the same respect because what my worry would be is it's going to take funds and attention away from where the safety needs really lie with this company. Yeah, if we're sitting here in the office in a you know in our new conference room and a light falls out of the ceiling and hits me in the head, that okay, that sure that's yeah. work that's workplace related. If I trip going to the um, <clears throat> refrigerator get a soda, that's not on the company. Okay. And that's what this feels more like. There is the technicality and the legal elements of it. I get that. But there's also the spirit of what this is intended to do and how this is intended to help support the workforce. And yeah. this what this situation does not feel relevant to me. I see maybe it's this because of the uh circumstances around the this particular accident, but I did think about this a lot during the height of the pandemic. You know, because we talked a lot about burnout, but I also thought that something like this should receive the same attention, but with common sense. So you're right, like some things like, uh, you know, tripping on the way to the refrigerator or another stumble. But, you know, say, I don't know, say you're uh, I'm writing from home while I'm working from home and I get electrocuted by my laptop. Like fair. Yeah. So I think it's like. I think I think that sometimes when stories like this come out, you know, we're always seeing extremes. You know, there's no common sense. But I thought I thought that that Andy, I don't know if you uh, it ever occurred to you, but like I thought with so many people working from home that we would actually see a lot more of this. I was surprised we haven't seen more. Of this. I was thinking two years ago at this time, I probably would have maybe scoffed at this story. And then we were all uh, fortunate. I should I think fortunate enough to be kind of forced to work from home. Mm-hmm. Um and we were all still on the clock. So while your point is well taken that, you know, not every workplace injury is created equal, um, that's almost not really what I think we're talking about here. We're just talking about whether people in their own homes should be protected when they're on the clock. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's that's two different discussions. So um, it was just interesting how, uh, how life kind of uh, forced perspectives to change a little bit about that. What uh, So on those two different perspectives, where do you stand on both? Um, I think reasonable people can disagree about what constitutes uh, injury if you're walking to the fridge in the office. <laughs> um, and then uh, I think uh, if your workplace is your house, that's that's your workplace, and you should be covered by workers' compensation. Yeah. So not being I, an attorney I, or anything. I did misread this. He tripped on the staircase. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. I read that incorrectly. So basically, oh. he was coming downstairs. Oh, I thought you were. Uh, I thought you were just like making up. Like no, I tripped I, on suitcases. I thought it was suitcase. Like, it's staircase. My this bad. messy okay. man. No. Still. Yeah. Okay. That is going from one area to another. That is not a work-related injury, in my opinion. I understand that's his office. That's his work environment. Yeah. The company should not be on the hook for that. Yeah. But then your quibbles with the whole work comp system. Yeah. Not with just working from home, because that could have happened at any any office where he's walking down the staircase, you know? 
I think it, again, it depends on the spirit of the situation. Okay, yeah. if you're why if you're going downstairs in an industrial environment and they weren't properly, um, there wasn't the right place mat, uh, matting and stuff like that in place. The, the the stairs were slippery, all that type of stuff. Because you're in that operating environment, that's different than having a little too much padding on the stairs and doing it in your socks. True, okay? but I mean, like I mean, if you fell down, if you fell going down the stairs in the office in our office building, that would be workman's comp. You know, even if it was, you know, on your break or whatever. Okay, but I'm also at this building. Yeah. Not at home. Yeah. To me, that's different. No, I agree. The, I agree on the agree to disagree point. Um, but I was also. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the nicest way you've ever said you're wrong. <laughs> well, uh, the other How point. How long have you been married? <laughs> you got good at this. Right? You just got to massage the cord. Um, so. Uh, we do have a comment from somebody that's watching us live. That's also something I should have noticed on the uh, at the beginning of this. We are going live today, so if you do have any questions, like Nolan here, please make sure to uh, send those in and we'll get to them in a minute, Nolan. But it made me think about how it's a more empowered employee now in that companies would be well-served to do by their employees, again, within reason, before it ever gets to this. So, like especially during the pandemic, things were weird. And, you know, we kind of saw it with how like none of the executives really moved or anything like that. Um, so again, all within reason. Now we'll get to Nolan. Nolan says, I once faced, fainted at my place of work and was taken to the ER. None of the expenses were covered by workers comp. Should it have been? Yes. Depends. Maybe. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> If there's a pre-existing health condition, oh, if, there, if if what was going on at work led to you passing out, yeah, th- th- I think those are different things. But otherwise, this isn't this is a, this is why you have medical insurance, right? Yeah, uh, yes, but I do think that work workers comp would should be there to cover if there was any sort of lost work or anything like that. It does. It is does. Okay, it that would I would agree. Yeah. That I agree with. Um, do we want to get into the absurdity of the American healthcare system here or we'll save that? Let's get down to it right now. It's garbage, doll. It's garbage. <laughs> um, let's put a pin in that for 2022. Good. Sounds good. All right. We'll just see what kind of changes they make to the system and then we can, uh, mm-hmm. get back. I, uh, there was one law firm, Woodruff and Sawyer that said, um, their take on it was that yes, remote and telecommuting uh, workers typically are covered under workman's comp policies if the injury or illness occurred while an employee is completing a work task during work hours. So I think that's where there's that little bit of like is going down the stairs to the kitchen right. a work task, you know. Um, in most cases, the remote worker has the burden of proof, meaning that they have to be able to demonstrate that they were acting in the interest of the employer at the time they got sick or injured. However, the courts have found that even though the employer does not have control over an employee's home environment, that lack is not a reason to deny claims. Therefore, employees are responsible for providing the same safe work environment in both their on-site and remote workers. I thought that kind of summed it up really nice. And uh, I also like the comment on the site uh, where, where uh, the his name is TK Field Events. Got to work on that screen name, bud. Uh <laughs> He says that uh, you request in our granted work from home, expect an OSHA visit sooner rather than later. And that's a very bad deal all around. Yeah, that could, that's, that's a slippery slope. Right. Uh, I just want to th- oh, throw one more thing in there. Yeah. Just, I saw this stat from the National Safety Council. Uh, in 2019, total cost for injuries was over $170 billion. About a third of that was just the administrative costs oh, involved with processing claims and things like that. That's, again, where I'm coming from a little bit. Oh, yeah. We start getting into this type of uh, potential work injury. I mean, when it comes to all the bureaucratic red tape that goes into that, yeah. a lot of waste could be cut out. Right. A lot of waste. All right. Our next most popular story. GM warns common aftermarket accessory can ruin Corvette's mirrors. GM issued a warning to owners, owners of the Corvette C8. GM says that if owners install an aftermarket hardwired radar detector, it could send too much voltage to the driver's outside mirror and fry the defrosting system. The problem causes, quote, a poor operation and appearance, including numerous lines shown in the mirror and a dim reflection at all times. Sorry, that's funny because if you see what it looks like, that's a ridiculous statement. CNET's Roadshow describes the line pattern as, quote, digital worms that are disturbing and horrifying. Because it's an aftermarket modification, warranties don't apply and there's no real fix. If it happens, the only thing to do is replace the mirror. 
Now, Andy, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. I feel like disturbing and horrifying are a little heavy, but uh, it's still a nasty problem. It's a bit of a, a safety issue more than a, more than any existential crisis, I think. Yeah, um, the height of first world yeah, problems. Hor- horrifying was a bit yeah. heavy. Yeah. I saw my God. I no. saw the photo that that CNET posted. I couldn't really tell. I guess they're they're saying you have to replace it. I couldn't really tell whether you could see a whole lot out of it. Yeah, you, you couldn't. Certainly couldn't in the photo, but I don't know if that was a good perspective of uh, objects maybe being closer than they appear in that mirror. <laughs> if I mean, if you have a Corvette and you're capable of making modific- aftermarket modifications to it, it's going to be a pain. But maybe you can uh, swing the mirror replacement. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, this is the only reason I, I don't own a Corvette, by the way, is all the uh, the aftermarket Oh, issues to avoid. You are smart. not giving Speed up traps. your radar detector. That's right. For anybody, including a brand new Corvette. Uh, That's where you draw the line. I did not know that radar detectors were still a thing, Jeff. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, I thought once you got past, like, 20, you just kind of figured, well, you know, if I get caught, I get caught. I mean, yeah. I can remember in high school, that was a big deal. Yeah, then you got like, frustrated because every time you drove past, like, some sort of store with a security system. It set off the fuzz buster. Doesn't Google, old school Cobra. Doesn't Google tell you now when there's a speed trap? It does, but it's not always. Well, I mean, I guess that's it's a little the, shaky. Yeah. Not I as, mean, not as good as the old I fuzz still, buster. I still slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the first one I saw was in my grandpa's old van, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. But I feel like, yeah, I don't remember what age I was, but it, all of a sudden it was right. like, yeah, I don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I was surprised that that's even a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, horrifying. It was a weird picture, though. It does look pretty crazy when that thing fries. Yeah. Um, the, the, interesting, too, with Corvettes, because you've got this really iconic brand for GM and for Chevy. And when you look at the sales patterns, it mm-hmm. is it really follows the economy. When oh, the economy's yeah. up, they make more. And I know a lot of it is because they have a lot of special editions, and there's a lot of different factors Not that it makes it different than a, a traditional vehicle. But when you saw the economy tank in like the late 2000s, so did Corvette sales. Okay. When things were going well in the middle teens, Corvette sales were up. Now they've kind of gone down again. And I just bring that up because with it being such a such a recognizable brand of its own, mm-hmm. you'd think GM would kind of go above and beyond and making sure it attracts nothing negative like this. Oh, yeah. You'd think they would just make sure it's, you know, it, it lives up to its name and its expectations a little bit. So I was a little surprised there. But when you do a little research on Corvettes, one of the things they are not known for is being ultra reliable. Oh. Um, they do have, they tend to get issues right around the 40, 50,000 mile mark. Okay. In particular, electrical issues seem to be very oh. prominent with, with these vehicles, okay. especially since they started doing more with the digital dashboards and things like that. Mm. So they are touchy to begin with. Yeah. Then you throw Andy's Fuzzbuster on there, and you know it's just it's you're looking for trouble. It seems like, and you would think Corvette owners would kind of know this. Yeah, they're a pretty passionate group. Whenever we run something on the site about these cars, it always oh, gets yeah. a ton of attention. So it's a little surprising that this would be a surprise to to GM and Chevy, I guess. Yeah, and it's to me, it just seemed like that's the chance you take with aftermarket parts. Yeah, you know it's. I've always, you know, when I had my old Jeep, I always wanted to put it on a lift. And it was just like, I don't know. Like, you start looking into the cost of everything, and you're like, I think it's fine. Like, Well, that is one thing they can get away with here, because it is a more expensive vehicle. It's not crazy expensive, like some of the real luxury sports cars and stuff. But it's got its, it's, got its very passionate core group. So... And to those folks, replacing something probably isn't a big deal. So yeah. they can maybe skirt this a little bit too. Yeah. Still surprising that it'd be such an issue. Yeah, the C8 starts at around $61,000 um, MSRP. And I found it interesting. And you actually are very familiar with the automotive aftermarket. Um, but I couldn't believe it was worth $325 billion in 2021. Keeps going up too. I mean, go to that SEMA show out in Vegas. Oh, yeah. It is amazing, first of all. If you're if you have any just even a passing interest in the automotive side of things, just to see what you can do. Yeah. <laughs> now, excuse me. <clears throat> now one of the big factors too that's helping actually grow the market but bring some of the cost down is 3D printing. Yeah. I feel like oh yeah, there's been a lot of cool customizations yeah. with 3D printing. I feel like it's uh the aftermarket is a slippery slope. I feel like it's kind of like tattoos. Where you know, you get that first one, <laughs> you're just like yeah, that's real cool. That show, we did a story on that uh, that electric, um, what was it, a Ford 250 or something like that from the late 70s that they modified yeah, to an electric yeah. truck. And people were, and myself included, I'm not, I wouldn't be 
characterized as a car guy by any stretch, but uh, that one was uh, piquing my interest a little yeah. bit. I oh, drive that. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I uh, retrofitting a car into an EV. I mean, that is just, that is cool. Yeah. That is cool. I should have looked up the stats on how much that's, they think that's going to be worth because I suspect it would be worth a lot in the coming uh, few years here. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to our next most popular story. Employees faced termination threats as deadly tornado approached. Eight people died when a tornado demolished the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Factory in Mayfield, Kentucky. According to NBC News, hours before the storm hit, workers asked managers to leave and seek shelter at their homes. The requests were not only denied, but employees were told that they would be fired if they left. Some workers left anyway, and managers managers reportedly took attendance to find out who left. Now, according to the company, 110 people were working that night when the building collapsed on top of them. The company has denied the claims and referenced a new policy put in place during the pandemic, which allows employees to leave anytime they want and come back <clears throat> the next day. A team lead supported the company's statement. Jeff, I don't know how you felt, but that just seemed like a bad look all, all around. Yeah, horrible. Um, I think what this really reinforces to me is that whole, I mean, it's, it's a cliche and all that, but being as strong as your weakest link. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the time frame when this happened, the first um, tornado siren, I think, went off about 530. 530, yeah. So you're looking at second shift, mm -hmm. okay? Second one at 9 o'clock. I know you have particular. I don't know, Andy, if you've had a chance to work in a manufacturing facility, but when that second shift hits, the reality is those supervisors, those team leads, they're not your number one people. Yeah. They're not. They're the people that got stuck managing the second shift. And I think what this just horrifically reeks of is bad, bad management. Mm -hmm. We've talked about so many managers being sort of tone deaf to the new operating environment. Based on the pandemic, this company put a guideline in that basically said, if you get to work, you start feeling uncomfortable, you can leave. Yeah. No questions asked, no issues, no negative ramifications coming back at you. Mm -hmm. These people wanted to do that. And these managers, again, because they're under a holiday rush, they've got a bunch of stuff they need to get out the door. They have a big, I forget the retail that they're connected oh, with. Body works, yeah. So obviously there's a ton that needs to get done. Quotas need to be met, all that kind of stuff. But still, when you put a corporate policy in place like that, you can't just say no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the quite, and quite honestly, when you look at the damage, as horrible as it was that eight people lost their lives, yeah. my goodness, it could have been all of so much worse. Yeah. When there's stories about people literally digging their way out of the the wreckage mm -hmm. from this building, mm -hmm. um, it's just it's horrible. And again, it's it's bad management, poor decisions being made there. Um, you just feel for everybody in that area because the the ability to rebuild is one thing, the ability to bring this business back. I think would be <laughs> much greater question because yeah. they're going to be facing a number of lawsuits and just their reputation. Mm -hmm. Do you think, is it Bath and Body Works? Is that who you said is lined? Yeah, I believe so. Do you think they want to be aligned with this as their supplier? Yeah. I mean, that's going to come under huge scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So try to rebuild your plant and get people back in there when you've got this stigma attached to you. Yeah. Well, it's, <clears throat> I definitely think there might've been some like, it's just another storm, but once they understood the ferocity of the storm I think they should have allowed people to go and seek shelter. I don't know. Uh, Andy, uh, what did you think about uh, the story? So um, this probably will not be the last one, but there's already been a lawsuit been filed over this matter. Um, at the beginning in the initial NBC report, it was kind of, you know, one side against the other, one person's word against the other, against the company's uh, word rather. So um, this will get hashed out one way or the other kind of, or at least a court will attempt to hash this out as best they can one way or the other, how this actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, but this is another instance in the, at responding to the lawsuit, this is another instance of um, a company executive, maybe not knowing when to like hit the brakes on what they're talking about. Cause he said, we'll do a review of our processes. We think our people have acted heroically in some cases. Mm. And then you could have stopped there saying, we'll look into it. Yeah. Instead he says uh, also we're hearing reports that our workers didn't follow protocol. Which certainly could be the case. Yeah. But eight of your employees are dead. Like maybe wait until the completion of the investigation yeah. until you uh, until you go out with that speculation. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I looked at their website and the statements, extremely brief, mm -hmm. not a lot of detail, was basically looked like this is something they were forced to do. 
they were forced to put out some sort of response or statement to quote unquote cover all their bases or, or check the boxes that come up when uh, you have this type of situation arise, you did not get a real heartfelt connection or that they were doing this because they genuinely felt something was was broken and needed to be fixed there was i mean they did start the uh the fund for the workers and the families true. so that's that true. was there but that was definitely below the fold on the website that's all the way down it's uh yeah it's a very concise statement on the website um you know when we first did the story it was eight workers were still missing but you know it was actually kind of a relief to find out that all 102 of the workers were accounted for and survived yeah um According to a local ABC affiliate, in 2019, OSHA actually found 12 violations and fined Mayfield Consumer Products more than $16,000. A lot of these violations were serious in nature and included defects in the electrical protective equipment and problems with exit routes. Um, attorneys say that the company had more than enough to- warning time. You know, the uh, first alarm you said went up at 530 and then again at 9 and the tornado first touched down miles away. So they had the opportunity and uh, an attorney that's representing the company said that all proper safety protocols were followed. Like you had mentioned, uh, well, wait, so you said that the CEO came out and said like, they didn't follow. He said basically as an aside in the, in the AP report that they were hearing reports that workers didn't follow protocol, that their managers acted heroically in many cases to try and protect these people. And certainly that could be the case again, could have been much worse. So maybe that's the attorney coming, coming back over that where he says, you know, all proper safety protocols were followed that night, and they, uh, the protocols included sirens and employees huddling within specific areas of the plant when the tornado hit. Um, the one thing that I found interesting was that the uh, one of the attorneys noted that the building didn't have a basement, and I don't know many factories that do. No, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, getting back to that whole following protocol agree that that probably did happen okay Mm -hmm. when you're looking at people if you're looking at managing that many people on a plant floor you're going to know those safety protocols where they fell down Mm -hmm. is when people wanted to leave they should have let them leave because i would have probably had the same mentality that you just mentioned it's a storm we've been through this the weatherman overreacts it'll be fine yeah i agree i could have very easily fallen into that category Mm -hmm. but if i'm a manager and that person comes and says according to the company protocols or company bylaws i can leave if i don't feel comfortable yeah you got to let them go mm-hmm. and if they would have done that and if that reduces the fatalities here by even one mm-hmm. then those plant managers really are heroes because they made a better decision right. for all involved right no it's just really bad time to you know uh assert your force yeah all right <clears throat> let's move on to our top story this week. And actually, let's hope everything in Mayfield starts getting cleaned up and uh, absolutely taken care of. Um, our top story this week, how the Air Force's $19,000 problem got a four cent fix. As first reported by Task and Purpose, an innovative Air Force Master Sergeant recently fixed a $19,000 pair of night vision goggles with a four cent 3D printed part. Shannon Fulmer, an Air Force Defender, which is like the same as the military police, was frustrated that defenders couldn't use their new PSQ-20B enhanced night vision goggles because they couldn't properly be fitted to their helmets. Fulmer got innovative. First, he hot-glued washers to the helmet, <clears throat> the helmet's mount adapter, which offered a temporary fix. He then designed a 3D printable part. He took his blueprints to the innovation cell at Dias Air Force Base outside of Abilene, Texas. About a week later, the design was printed and is now being field tested by members of Fulmer's 7th Bomb Wing Security Force. The design, which uses about four cents worth of plastic, has been submitted to the 2022 Air Force Spark Tank Competition, which is an annual contest for pitching, quote, innovative solutions to operational problems. Jeff, I wanted to start with you because isn't it ridiculous that a $19,000 night vision goggle was purchased without first trying out <laughs> trying it on the helmets. Well, so a couple things. First, the going at, at that element, they do have the right helmet. It yeah. just hasn't gotten out to everybody yet. Oh, okay. So okay. this particular unit was really stuck using the same night vision goggles I remember using. Yeah. And these are, I mean, it's like go, it, it's like going from that black and green like DOS based computer screen yeah. to what we have now. I mean, it is a huge, huge difference from what they were using. And really, in in Master Sergeant Fulmer finding this solution, he really exemplified what I feel is a model that's throughout the military, which is mission first, 
people always. Mm. They've got their mission. These folks are in charge of defending some pretty high-level assets. Okay, yeah. We're talking about, obviously, bombers. <laughs> yeah. But these, these troops can be sent to guard any number of things, whether it's different um, weapon stores, nuclear energy facilities, things like that. So they have a very important mission. In order to accomplish that mission at the highest level, you want them to have the best possible equipment, which in this case are these latest night vision goggles that they have. Yeah. So the fact that they didn't have the right helmets, they couldn't use these night vision goggles, which is going to help them do their job better and also just protect themselves um, in a much better case in case there were some people out there mm-hmm. trying to uh, to get at what they're guarding. So I thought it was a great exemplary uh, or a great example just of that motto. Yeah. And I couldn't find the origins of it, but it's definitely anybody who's ever served has heard that. Yeah. Mission first people always. I think it's really cool how it worked out because I feel like there's a lot of this, you know, in my family, we call it putzen, where it's like there's always something can always be done a little bit better. Just yeah. like, oh, you know, if we get a shim in there and if we just get a little glue, like, and it actually turned out to be a fix that, you know, is could be used by his entire, what is it? Uh, the entire, um, Security force. Yeah, his entire security force. And the cool thing is, again, we mentioned it in there, basically they were at the point where they were going to like turn this stuff in and the unit was going to sell it oh. at a loss, essentially, <laughs> because they just didn't have the right helmet yeah. to, to put it on there. So they had procured this stuff, which anybody who's any tried to buy anything for your unit in a military situation, the budgeting is extremely tight, especially now we're seeing defense cuts. Um, so they got all these $19,000 goggles and they would have lost money on the deal. So oh. in fact, they can keep them use them, do their jobs better. It's a huge deal. So do those just wind up in an army surplus store then? They find they would go to a different unit. Oh, okay. But that unit isn't going to have to pay 19 grand for them. Yeah. Um, Andy, did you read the story or watch this video and think, man, that's some military spending. <laughs> I did. Um, and I know we run, we run manufacturing and engineering sites, so I should be uh, and I am impressed by the use of, you know, four cents of plastic and a 3D printer to fix this many, many thousands of dollars issue. But I'm also a child of the 80s. So I was impressed by the use of the hot glue gun. Oh, yeah. And the 10 cent washer <laughs> for an initial fix. Uh, that's that's what I enjoyed the most out of that story. I'm ashamed to admit. They actually the 3D printer uh, was created because of a hot glue gun. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, the first guy who created the 3D printer. I he, mean, that makes sense now that you say it. But. Yeah. He just started stacking hot glue with a hot glue gun. And he's like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I could probably do this with a with a printer. There you go. Um, so I also just thought we're going to see more and more of this with 3D printed parts. You know, I'm really excited about the promise of like 3D printed designs, you know, because a lot of them have the true... Uh, opportunity of 3D printing hasn't really been realized yet because we still have legacy design engineers trying to learn about the technology and use it to develop new products. When we start seeing more and more students that were, uh, you know, came up in school learning about how to use it, then we're going to truly see like the innovative stuff that can't be manufactured, but can be 3D printed. And I think, you know, we're going to see huge changes on anything from engines, uh, car engines to, you know, uh, little widgets on your helmet. Well, and really, and the Marines, I think, have really kind of led the way in this and trying to get 3D printing out to the field. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you're printing small parts for your oh, weapon, yeah. that's very easy to break or go missing when you're cleaning something. So getting them field ready, getting these, as 3D printing units themselves will become smaller, more durable, greater capabilities, yeah. easier to print stuff. The potential military applications are just going to continue to grow and expand. And it reflects a little bit of research here. I saw from markets and markets. They're estimating that 3D printing within a military spending um, dynamic is going to be up to like $4.5 billion by 2025. Jeez. It's currently at about $800 million. So we're looking at Whoa. huge, huge growth. And I think that potential comes from, again, on-the-spot replacement. All of a sudden, I don't need to get a new rifle. Yeah, I just need a new firing pin. They actually said that the savings, uh, the military is going really hardcore with 3D printing in the mm-hmm. field, just because the savings in terms of cargo space, um, like when they're sending people out on, and, and also one of the more dangerous parts uh, or uh, when people are in the battlefield is getting them resupply or yeah. these parts for their guns. And um, with a 3D printer, they can make it right there and just bring the digital files with them. I mean, the military is so forward thinking on this that like, DARPA is now working on 3D printing food out of garbage, you know, yeah. to feed people. I mean, that's just yeah, cool. The 3D as long printing as you're not the is first taste yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just um, weapons applications; it's vehicles, it's medical supplies, it's everything. Yeah, 
and it is it's could uh i mean just completely change logistics in the military it has the potential to absolutely all right <clears throat> well let's move on to in case you missed it and in case you missed it we like to talk about stories that maybe weren't as popular but you know still could shake up the industry quite a bit i'll go first because about a flying saucer <laughs> Ziva wants a flying saucer in every garage by 2040. Ziva Aeroelectric's answer to the modern aircraft is, gentlemen, the flying saucer. And I couldn't be more excited. Ziva's flying saucer is called the Zero, and it's an electric personal aircraft in a long line of EV toll concepts that are vying for a piece of the urban air mobility market. Zero is designed to serve the first responder market first, with a 50-mile range, a top speed of 160 miles per hour, and a 200-pound payload. The company has a full-scale working prototype currently conducting test flights, which actually puts it quite a step above, you know, a lot of people that just have renderings out there. Based in Tacoma, Washington, the company has raised $150,000 via investment platform Start Engine, and the company has some aggressive goals. The Flying Saucer is going to retail for $250,000, and the company hopes to sell 500 of them by 2025 in just the next four years, which... Aggressive. Aggressive. Not just the 150000 startup money, but, you know, that would be $125 million if everything comes together. They also want Zero to be fully autonomous, so anyone can fly it and you don't need a pilot's license. license. And, the pro- and they project a Ziva in every garage by 2040. Of course now, they do. Yes. I'm one for outlandish claims, but those seem a little outlandish. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a little stuck on the application. Okay. He's got a 200-pound payload. Yeah. So obviously nobody, no person is going to be in there. No, it'll take a person. Tiny person. One person. Yeah, if you actually see it, it's a flying saucer, and you just stand up in it, like, uh, almost like you're kind of, like, walking into the world's (gasps) smallest hallway. So what are you supposed to take with you if it's for the first responder market yeah i mean like uh well let's just hope that first responder is about a buck 50 and uh you know gets the supplies they need take your stethoscope yeah (laughs) (laughs) some band-aids and gauze yeah lots of lots of band-aids it's pretty cool like uh you're just and you just see the person's head like in the window of this ufo or flying saucer and uh it is cool and i like to get on board with any kind of new aircraft you couldn't even get in this aircraft Easy. (laughs) I couldn't. I I could get in. It's just chances are I couldn't take off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty Um, sure Andy's the only. Maybe Alex. Those two are the only ones who could even get in this thing. Well, that's they're the heroes. You know, we're the ones in the wreckage. Physically, I'm not sure I could mentally. (laughs) It is a tight fit, and it's like you take off where you're standing straight up, and then it like uh, transitions to horizontal. So then you're like kind of. Uh, on your uh, stomach while you're flying, it is. Uh, it's well, an interesting design. But you can't even raise your arms like Superman. No, no, no. You're sitting there with like they Terrible. got two little handles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm gonna borrow another military saying that I heard way too often in basic training. Excellent initiative, poor execution. So far, it's a working prototype. 250 miles an hour. That's impressive. Yeah. Low payload. Red- huge price. Yeah, I'm not sure how where this fits in. It's uh, you know, they definitely need to work on the payload and uh, the price. Actually, an ambulance costs three hundred thousand dollars. You can fit more than two hundred <laughs> pounds in an ambulance. You can carry your patient in an ambulance. We're gonna work through some <laughs> details. Gotta, see, I know you, when your voice gets that high, <laughs> I know you're in trouble. Yeah, no, it's just uh, I see some really cool concepts from time to time. Oh, see, now now he's using the calm professor voice. (laughs) He goes from up here, high pitch, where he's in trouble, to like, okay, let me just bring it right down. I'm just going to keep this real simple and straight, and we're just going to talk right through it. It'll be fine. That's right. That's right. No, hey, there's a lot of smart people at this company. They got engineering titles anyways. And (laughs) they definitely said, you know what? Flying saucer. And, like, people are on board. I don't know. Yeah, one day you will be arrested by twenty four. I have one of those in my garage. Yeah, like everybody else will. Yeah, by twenty four for the you kids. can you can correct me. Yeah, all right. It's well, I will eat those words. <laughs> I'll put a note. <laughs> I'll put it in my calendar. <laughs> Jan one twenty forty. Yeah. All right, uh, Jeff. What's your in case you missed it this week? So we ran a story time with the Port of Los Angeles and how it's going to actually break import records despite all of these huge supply chain issues we're having there is still more stuff coming into that port than ever before that's incredible they have got ships backed up um 
they said that on average they're still was it seven 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 oh boy I lost my notes okay anyway nearly a hundred ships were drifting near the port when this story broke this week so you still got hundreds of container ships out there can't get in because there's not enough people to unload them there's not enough semis to actually take the cargo and deliver it. But still, because consumer demand is so strong right now, because consumer confidence is so strong, we just can't get enough stuff. And this port is going to set new records in terms of what it's bringing in. It's supposed to import about 5.5 million container units this year. That is a 13% jump over the record set in 2018. And if everything that I've heard in the industry is true, I mean, they're just really packing those containers full these days. Because it's so expensive to get any room in them. Well, and one of the other issues they have is they have like 700 containers, empty ones, just sitting there that are basically just in the way. They cannot unload these things. So they've got this huge number of containers that are sitting there to unload. They've got the empty ones they can't get rid of because the ships are coming in, dumping, and getting out of there because we've talked about crew members trying to get home and and everything else. So it is just a backup. And this is despite... Everything President Biden has tried to do in terms of extending the hours, letting them have more ships coming in, really basically breaking all the rules that they set up to sort of manage the flow in and out of there. Yeah. And they're still backed up, but we're still bringing more stuff in. Man, people just can't stop buying stuff on Amazon. (laughs) Apparently. So pretty interesting, despite all of the supply chain struggles, Port of LA is still hopping. That is is really interesting. I found it really... um, when they had all the trucks kind of backed up on the streets, just kind of waiting for, for yeah. whatever it was that they had to, uh, for their cargo. Um, I don't know. Uh, Andy, what'd you think about the, uh, record breaking year for the port of LA? I mean, if they're doing so much business that these ships can't even get on the dock, I mean, it's hard to, it's, I mean, it's not difficult to imagine they'd set some records. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Andy, what is your, in case you missed it this week? Uh, mine was about the Parker Solar Probe, uh, which uh, was launched in 2018 to make uh, our closest ever approach to the sun. Mm. Um, and that was interesting enough, obviously, because, you know, it's hot. Yeah, yeah. Because um, they threw something at the sun and it yes, made it. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's made, it had made seven passes then on its eighth, which happened in April, and they needed a few months to get the data back and to confirm that the data was accurate. Um, it's eighth pass in April. It actually touched, I'm doing air quotes yeah. for our visual medium podcast, yeah. touched the sun. It's uh, obviously a, uh, it's a star. It's a hot ball of gas. There's nothing to touch physically, but it crossed the the threshold of what they call the, the corona, which means it went through the sun, basically yeah. this little satellite. Um, That's and I don't have a ton to add to that other than that it's amazing. And I didn't think they were going to go touch the thing when they launched it. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I was very skeptical of this mission when it first launched. And I have to say, I appreciated the one researcher's feedback that just said, yeah, it looked dusty. (laughs) That was there. I'm sure they will have more data and it's going back deeper and deeper. Um, as it keeps making, uh, passes through 2025. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what they have for us besides it's dusty. Yeah. They'll no, get there. But if you watch right the now. video, this was a cool story. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend taking a look at this one. And the video that they had there, and you can kind of see what they're saying about oh, yeah. being dusty, but it is also straight out of like warp speed sci-fi movie. I mean, yeah. when they're going through there and it just see all of these sort of streams, streaks, yeah. I wish it could have somehow been like color video. <laughs> yeah. But again, we are dealing with something that hot take is really hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh I mean, of all the just crazy ideas, you know, we're talking about electrifying the ocean uh, last week. And it's stuff like this that whenever I hear something crazy, even like a flying saucer that is made for the petite person, you know, I still (laughs) I still like always think, man, that is going to be cool because stuff like this happens. And you're just like, they did it. Uh, Really, really was a pessimist when they said they were going to do it. (laughs) NASA, those guys, they are just ridiculous every time. Yeah. This is pretty cool. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, because he's going to get the feels, I wonder what uh, Elon's going to hurl at the sun next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm going to send a roadster up there. Maybe his Time Magazine cover shot. Yeah. Yeah. Send that into space. Okay. Well, let's move on to final thoughts. Um, I'll start with my final thought. And I was going to mention this earlier when we were talking about the house giveaway, but I've seen a lot more uh, gatherings and sort of like not positive PR, but 
things that companies are putting out on social media that I think are really cool in terms of holiday parties, get togethers. This one company uh, did a buck stew, which is cool. They have, um, they have uh, all their retired workers come in, make this buck stew for the current workforce. And then they kind of like walk them around the shop so they can see like all the improvements they've made over the years. And they can talk about like, Mm. you know, back in my day, we did that by hand. And then someone says, this is dangerous. Um, But stuff like that, uh, putting a positive foot forward on social media could also be very helpful to companies as they're in the job market as well. Because people, you know, look you up. And if they see that you're doing things for your employees like this, even if they're sometimes a little unorthodox or very particularly northern Wisconsin, uh, you know, it, it sets you apart from the competition. And I like to see more of it. You know, it was probably well, it was St. Patty's Day when the CEO was making, you know, Rubens for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff like that. It just uh, it makes the team a more cohesive unit. And I feel like we could always see more of it. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is. We unveiled today, Friday, uh, Nolan Beilstein unveiled his 12 movies of Christmas with a manufacturing angle. Now, we talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Didn't get a lot of feedback because, you know, there's not a lot out there. But uh, the 12 movies of Christmas with a manufacturing angle are 12, number 12, Fat Man with Mel Gibson, 11, Edward Scissorhands, 10, The Santa Claus, 9, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Eight, Office Christmas Party. Seven, Iron Man 3. Number six, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Number five, Klaus. Number four, The Polar Express. Number three, Elf. Number two, The Man Who Invented Christmas. And number one, kind of a kind of a little, little turn, Batman Returns. Batman Returns. Took some liberties with that list, didn't we? He took, we took some liberties, yes, yes. There was some, uh, there was some playful banter. And uh, not all all of it disregarded were, by yeah. certain parties. <laughs> um, How so, is Christmas Vacation six? I don't. That's ridiculous. I think they're. I think they have to be number one. Like, Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, that is a storied franchise based on you know food manufacturing. I watched that movie three times at least in the week before and of Christmas. I yeah. mean, it's a classic. I also have to say, so I. Just watched Batman, which is a gem. I can't really? go. I can't go out like recommending everybody go see it, but man, is it interesting! <laughs> uh, it's not, like, but so this entire subplot is where you know Mel Gibson runs a real is Chris Kringle who runs a real like government subsidized toy factory run by elves, and you know they're just not getting what they used to from the government because. Uh, Kids are naughtier and they're getting more coal, so they don't have to make more toys. And I'm just like, really interesting. And then the government comes in and is like, well, since there's a shortfall, maybe you could make it up by uh, contracting to do some work for us. And, oh, uh, man. Yeah. And so they start making like control panels for bombers. And uh, it's just, it has, I mean, we're talking about a subplot here. Like a lot of these are on the list because of subplots. Um, you know, there's also an angle where someone's trying to kill Santa Claus. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's, I found it interesting. And it's one of those where like sometimes, you know, when you're in an industry like this and you're watching a movie, it kind of changes your perspective as to what you're looking at. All right. I always like my Christmas movies to have a, have a look at the uh, military industrial complex, a critique of the military <laughs> industrial complex. <laughs> I, I mean, and just of, a hint of terrorism in there too, right? Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, Batman Returns, I think is actually a solid addition to this list. I mean, maybe number one, I don't know. The power plant angle on it is interesting. <laughs> The one I can't get over is how the Grinch stole Christmas because you can make any argument. You can make, a, he made two solid, not solid. He made two arguments. He made two arguments and I just don't see it. No, no, he's wrong. He's yeah. just wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> according to just who happens to be a random viewer, uh, Nolan says any list worth making will have controversy. Well then this one was worth making. All right. <laughs> um, all right. So it, Actually, we've already started receiving some other um, suggestions for people as to what we might have left off because we didn't dabble into like made for TV movies because there's Yikes. thousands. Um, but as we uh, receive those, we'll make sure to add those to the list, maybe as an honorable mention, unless they're just garbage. All right. <clears throat> Andy, <laughs> the diversion aside, what's your final thought this week? Um, I had a different one, but first I'm curious is Buck Stew 
Is that what it sounds like? Yeah, just venison stew. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. It was. It looks delicious, and they just made so much of it. Do they? Do they steer it with the antler? Uh, I didn't see that, but man, would that be like the most that's manly good That immediately popped into my head, and I don't know what that says about me. <sighs> Lot. All right. Okay. Um. No, my uh, my my last thing this week is that uh, I have my Christmas presents all wrapped up and ready to go. Nice. More than a week in advance. Oh, I gotta um, do that. <laughs> Um, and I have the, uh, supply chain crisis to thank cause, uh, any sort of last minute stuff I was looking for, it's like, oh, I can't get it till the February. And I was like, great. Out of sight, out of mind. We're done. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people are going to get burned this year or just prepare to be disappointed. Loved ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to get a lot of like maybe ill fitting turtlenecks just cause that's the last thing at Kohl's. We can get those on time for you. <laughs> yeah. Just like I went to the store hunt and I really thought this sweater reminded me of yeah i'm sorry i waited to the last it was night. just here yeah it's what they had left merry christmas it's a bag of fun uh <laughs> gift receipt attached yeah uh jeff what is your final thought this week so you guys know um my dad passed about a year ago almost mm-hmm. exactly and <clears throat> going through his stuff is kind of bittersweet it's mm-hmm. tough for obvious reasons but once while you see some stuff, it just brings back a lot of really cool memories. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of positive there, too. The other thing, a couple of things about my dad is he was a tool and die maker at E.R. Wagner's in Houston, Ford, Wisconsin for about 35-ish years. Mm-hmm. The other thing is he was a super practical guy. So he didn't have a lot of stuff. But if he got stuff yeah. and it had utility, he kept it. Yeah. Which is probably why I can remember this thing of binder twine in our garage that when I was five or six was about a foot high and about four inches thick. Yeah. And now 40 years later, it's about a foot high and three and a half <laughs> inches thick because <clears throat> he was not going to throw this away. You never know when you're going <clears> to <throat> need twine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So the other thing that we found the other day was this deck of cards. My mom was looking through some cards. She's mm-hmm. trying to find some playing cards. And we found these, which were obviously my dad's and they were from Wagner products and they're called safety pursuit cards. <laughs> okay. Now, Basically playing off oh, of like trivia, trivia pursuits. Pursuit. Yeah. They're just set up the same way, these cards. And I think what they thought was, hey, when you guys are on break or at lunch, pull the cards out and talk about safety here yeah. in the plant. <laughs> now, it's it's interesting for two reasons. Because number one, I can remember as a small child going through this plant with no type of goggles or anything on my <laughs> head. My dad just kind of basically, yeah, this is where I work and this is the stuff and everything else. The other thing is these cards are in pristine condition yeah they didn't uh, they see were, a lot of use in the lunchroom they were not used for sure <laughs> yeah but i thought one of the things that might be kind of cool is we've got all these wonderful t-shirts mm-hmm. to give away the yeah. today in manufacturing podcast t-shirts so these cards which were produced in 1988 so they're a little dated we're gonna throw some of these questions out to the audience mm-hmm. email the podcast with your qu- answers if you're right you get a t-shirt and I also know that we've got a lot of listeners who kind of listen collectively. Oh, yeah. Got a lot of crews. So if it's your team, your group, whatever, there's five or ten of you, you're all good. Send in a collective answer. We'll take care of you with a T-shirt. Oh, man. But you need to have the correct answer for this question. Interesting. All right. Here we go. First question. What is the most expensive common injury in the United States? Now, when they talk about injury, they're talking about the type of physical injury you would suffer. Okay. A broken arm, a turned ankle, a, I don't know. Are we whatever. supposed to answer? Or no. Are we wait? Oh, okay. We're waiting for the audience. Okay. We'll see what they send in, see how many t-shirts we can give away, and we'll reveal, yeah. we'll reveal the answer next week. That's awesome. So if we get enough interest, we'll keep doing this, give away some t-shirts, and we can answer these 30-year-old safety <laughs> questions to, to see what we it's, can uh, drum up here. It's uh, it's an inter- I like I really like the concept. I think like safety pursuit maybe should have been more like, maybe put one of these on a playing card. You know, like each yeah. playing card has a, yeah. you know, a tidbit, like a trivia fact. I am confident knowing my dad and the folks he worked with, they could have put a $20 bill inside this thing and it would <laughs> still have been in there. Yeah. So I'm not saying they weren't safe. I'm just saying this was not probably the best. You want to talk to about the Packers about. on your break, not, exactly. not the safety regulations. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> my closing thought is answer the question. Yeah. Um, what, uh, Oh, I don't even know where to go with it. That's amazing. Those are just really no, cool. Like they're in perfect condition. Oh, yeah. Like there is, this may have been the second time these were open. Yeah. He so. brought them home and put it in the stack of playing cards. Yeah. 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 He's, oh no. That's what I wanted to ask is, so you played in a factory as a kid? Didn't play. There oh, would just okay. be a couple of times. Cause my dad actually, when I was young, he worked a uh, second shift. 
Oh, okay. So we just go down because he would be, you know, at lunchtime at eight o'clock at night or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. okay. Once a while we'd go down there. No, that's cool. I definitely went to uh, factories that my dad worked at, um, like, and would walk around and definitely like the first time you see that bin of hot chips, if they're like cutting something on a yeah. machine, you're just like, what's this? And then you touch it and you're like, oh, it'll, it'll thrash my hand. <laughs> it's a tiny bucket of razor blades. Yeah, it wasn't. I do. The one thing I do remember is they made casters. Oh, so okay. there's a bunch of little wheels all over um, the place. Cool. So, you know, I loved Hot Wheels. So that's how my dad related what he did. He's like, I make the designs for those little Hot Wheels. Oh, that's really cool. All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. To email the podcast with your answer to the trivia question, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Andy, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Finally, if you want to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters, You'll make sure you get the podcast in your inbox first. All right. For Jeff, Andy, and Anna at home, hope to see you soon. I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.